Welcome to OBEHAVE, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. Hi, I'm Julia Stainforth. And I'm Maddie Croucher, and we're the hosts of this podcast. Today's episode is an interview by Eleanor Heather, a senior behavioral strategist here at Ogilvy Consulting, who you may have heard on the pod before interviewing Caroline Webb. Today, she's on the phone with the author and entrepreneur James Clear. In his work and writing, he explores how science can be used to live better. James's first book, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones, was published last week to great reviews. We're excited to have him on the podcast this week. So without further ado, here are Eleanor and James having a chat about habits. Many people like myself, like my colleagues, do receive your kind of weekly emails and your kind of strategies and tips, but... I think we'd all like to know a little bit more about who you are, maybe where you come from, as well as maybe what your purpose is with these, with these, with your blog and with your emails. Sure. So the purpose behind JamesClear.com and uh, the writing that I've done, whether it's the book, Atomic Habits, or other projects, really is just to be useful. Um, I think that habits and human behavior and having an understanding of those topics is crucial for. Uh, not only for building a successful business, but just in general for living a successful life. Um, the better that we can understand what drives our behavior and what influences the choices and actions that we take each day, uh, the more control we have over that process and the more that we can design our habits to our liking rather than just be a victim of you know whatever our behavior seems to be each day or whatever seems to be influencing our behavior. Um, so most of the the purpose of it is just to try to provide something useful and helpful, um, something that people can apply in their life or work. As far as my background and where I come from, um, I first learned about habits and uh, and was exposed to the influence of habits mostly as an athlete. Um, so I played baseball uh, for many years, all the way through college and a variety of other sports as well. And as any athlete can tell you, uh, there are all kinds of habits that you have when you're at practice each day or um, in the gym or things like that. Now, I didn't really have a language for it at that time. I was just practicing it and kind of implementing some of these ideas. And I've always been a science-based person or interested in science. So I, in uh, undergraduate, I majored in some of the harder sciences, mostly chemistry and physics classes, um, occasional biology class, things like that. But uh, after I graduated, I went to business school and my job was to analyze venture capital investment in the region. So I was like kind of watching or uh, analyzing all these companies that were starting. And that was where I kind of got the itch to do my own thing as well. And I was like, oh, you know, all these people are doing it. Maybe I should try it. Well, I tried to launch a business uh, for two years and tried a variety of ideas, but none of them went that well. And what I realized was that I didn't have an understanding of consumer behavior, of why someone would sign up for an email list or buy a product or something like that. And that was kind of the moment where these two uh, separate worlds collided for me, where I had the world as an athlete, where I had been practicing habits and, um, and trying to master my own behavior. And then now suddenly I had this world as an entrepreneur where I was trying to learn 
why my customers would act in a certain way. And that led me down this rabbit hole of behavior change and habit formation. And I started writing about habits at jamesclear.com. And that was November 12th, 2012 was the first article that I published there. And then I published a new article every Monday and Thursday uh, for the next three years. And that was kind of the the time when all of those different disparate areas of my background came together to develop this habit, this expertise around habits and behavior change. That's so fascinating. It's such a, a quite a unique journey as well. And kind of on that, you, on the articles and everything that you have written in the areas you, you've kind of explored on, on your website, you kind of seem to have these four, I guess, pillars. Our, our areas being kind of better habits, better performance, better thinking and, and optimal health. Or mm. are these the kind of areas that you feel habit goes across all of them? Or, you know, why have you kind of bucketed these ones out? Yeah, I would agree with that statement. I do think habits apply to all of those. Uh, and I would also say that, um, you know, I'm interested in kind of two ends of the same spectrum. So on the one end, I'm interested in big ideas, frameworks, theories, philosophies, uh, mental models, approaches for thinking about the problems that we deal with in business and in life. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I'm interested in really applicable, actionable details. How do we take those theories and turn them into something you can use in everyday life? And I think pretty much every article I write tries to, to tick those two boxes or um, uh, you know, address those two concerns in some way. I wanna start by laying out some big picture idea and then deliver an actionable insight for applying that to life and work. And uh, those four areas, better thinking, better habits, uh, optimal performance and better health are ways of thinking about those larger frameworks and applying them to uh, specific areas, particularly better performance and better health are uh, ways to apply some of the bigger concepts that I talk about in better habits and better thinking. But they're roughly just broad buckets and I, I don't really limit myself to things that are only in those areas. Um, if something is useful and interesting, then I'll, I'll be happy to write about it even if it doesn't fit squarely inside one of those. And how do you feel that, because I think you talk on your website about you know, mastering your own habits and getting better yourself as a means of then helping, whether it's in your business or, or socially, you need to kind of master your own behavior. Hmm. How much do you think that you are able to say, go into a busy workplace or start to tackle cha like challenging client behaviors with the same tools and techniques that you might apply to your own? Well, a team, it's a good question. Um, I mean, a team is just a collection of individuals. So if you understand how the individuals perform, then you have maybe say half of the picture that you need uh, to understand the team dynamics and how teams are gonna behave as well. Now, there are a couple key issues, and I talk about some of these in Atomic Habits, um, that are uh, not necessarily unique to teams, but they emerge from uh, team or cultures or tribes or groups. Uh, and so, and they have a, a strong influence on the habits and behaviors of the people around them. So one way to think about this is through social norms. Um, each person is a part of multiple tribes. Uh, some of the tribes are really large, like what it means to be British or to be American or to be French or to be Christian or Buddhist or atheist or whatever. Um, 
And some of the groups, some of the tribes are small, like what it means to be a member of your local gym or to be a neighbor that lives on your street or someone who volunteers at a local organization. But all of these tribes, large or small, have a set of shared expectations, a set of social norms. And so, you know, you see things like, um, just take two common behaviors. If you walk onto an elevator, uh, pretty much everyone turns around to face the front. Or if you uh, have a job interview, everybody wears a shirt and a tie or a dress or something nice. Um, now, there's no reason that it has to be that way. You could face the back of the elevator. You could wear a bathing suit to a job interview. Um, but people don't because it would violate the shared expectations of the group. And so this is where uh, something that's uh, particularly relevant to habits in a team context or in a group context is what are the social norms and how are those influencing habits? You find that when behaviors go with the grain of the group, they're very attractive. When habits go against the grain of the shared expectations, they're very unattractive. And so uh, this is particularly relevant for product creation because you want to make sure that your product is not asking your customer to go against the grain of their social norm. Uh, or you want to reach the customer when they're surrounded by a tribe where the product uh, aligns with that norm. Um, so for example, um, take, you know, take some, there are many products that are strongly tied to an identity, like uh, a Toyota Prius or an electric car, uh, something like that might be tied to being environmentally friendly. And so purchasing that product is not only a means of getting around of having a car, it's also a means of signaling to the people around you that you're environmentally conscious. And there are all kinds of uh, products that are like this, that are a signal of, of something else, of some part of your personality. But you need to be careful that uh, whatever your product is, it's not asking someone to signal something that goes against the tribe they belong to, or that you're marketing to people where that is advantageous. You know, like if you have a, an electric car, it would make a lot of sense to market to people who are environmentally conscious because that aligns with the social norm that they're a part of. Um, the same thing is true within any team or organization. You need to make sure that the habits that you're asking people to build don't actually conflict with the shared expectations of the group. And it's surprising how often behavior change initiatives uh, inside organizations do end up doing that unintentionally. Uh, you try to change things up, but it's really difficult to stick to because it violates uh, what people assumed the culture was before that. Yeah, that's so interesting. We're kind of about to embark on exploring how we as a team work, our kind of working styles from kind of optimizing how we handle emails to, you know, meeting times and, and these types of things. But it, it will cause an element of conflict and unease because we might end up going against the grain of the wider organization. And it's quite interesting how you start, you know, framing the language that you use or supporting people to get through that initial change period until it becomes more of an established norm within your in-group um but yeah that that kind of uncomfortable feeling of going against the norm of what other people are doing is such a powerful driver well i think you bring up a good point there which is that uh <clears throat> until it becomes the norm of the new in-group and leaving you have to realize in many cases asking people to change their behavior is uh really an exercise in asking them to change their tribe you're asking them to develop a new set of behaviors that is not going to be, that are not going to be accepted by the people around them. 
And so they need to switch. Uh, now, there are two options in that case. The first option is to be bold and courageous and leave and do it on your own, which is possible, but is very hard. Um, the second option is to switch tribes, to move to a new group. Now, change is going to require effort in either case, and it might not be easy, but it's probably easier to ask people to do this together or to move to a new group than it is to ask them to abandon the old group and be on their own. If the option is I could have the new habits that I want and be alone, or I could keep my old habits and stay with the group, often we'd rather be wrong uh, with the tribe than right by ourselves. And so uh, you have like this kind of loneliness aspect to uh, think about as well. And um, that's often easier to deal with if you have, even if it's just a few people, a core group that are all building the same habit together rather than trying to do it on your own. That kind of, I guess, brings me on to what we were interested in about as well, about Atomic Habits, which is your new book about to come out. Um, why Atomic? Yeah, good question. So I chose the phrase atomic habits for three reasons. Um, so the first reason is that you, atomic can mean tiny or small. And that's part of my philosophy that habits should be easy to do, that they should be small and, and simple. Uh, and I think they're more likely to stick that way. The second meaning of atomic is the smallest fundamental unit of a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds and so on. And in many ways, we could say that habits are kind of like the atoms of our lives. They're like these little routines, these fundamental units, these little behaviors that we perform each day. And when you add them all up and stack them together, you end up with kind of this overall system of your life. And um, the third meaning of atomic is the source of immense energy or power. And I think if you add all those meanings together, you look, combine all three, you end up with the narrative arc of the book, which is that if you make small, easy changes and you layer them on top of each other, like units in a larger system, then you can end up with powerful results in the long run. And uh, so that was one reason why I, why I felt like Atomic Habits was an appropriate phrase as the title of the book. And is that, I guess, is that kind of speaking to that, you know, 1% better? every day of that kind of element of continual improvement or correct so one of the things i talk about early in the book in chapter one is this idea of getting one percent better each day um and it, you know it's just a heuristic it's an idea for a way to improve yourself or a product or a company um but in the conclusion to the book i say that uh and i think this is an important point the holy grail of habit change is not a single one percent improvement it's a thousand of them it's like layering them all on top of each other. And this is where we get that fundamental unit in a larger system idea. Um, there's, a, there's a famous paradox known as the Sorites paradox. And it, there are a couple different variations, but one of them goes like this, which is if you give uh, a man or a woman a, one coin, would you say that that person is rich? And most people would say, well, no, you wouldn't say they're rich. Well, what if you give them another coin and another and another and another and eventually, at some point, you have this pile of, you know, millions of coins, and you have to say, giving one coin made them rich. Um, and I think that the process of behavior change is similar in that respect, where if you make a single 1% improvement, is your life going to radically transform? Is your business going to radically become more effective? Well, no, probably not. But what if you make another and another and another? 
And if you're willing to do that, to layer those 1% improvements on top of each other, to try to find a small margin for improvement each day, then I think you can say small changes can transform your life or your business. And so uh, that's kind of the core philosophy is how can we make easy changes on a daily basis, but have a commitment to uh, improving in that way every day in the long run. And but what would that look like in a kind of a 1% improvement in, in your day? What would that translate to into an actual behavior or a, a marked difference? Sure. So good question. There are a variety of ways to do this. Uh, the, the book is organized to lay out like many practical applications of this, but I'll just talk through one and I'll give you an example for building a good habit and for breaking a bad habit. So yeah. uh, one option here is to in, use what I call environment design. Um, and the basic idea is that many of our behaviors are nudged or influenced by our physical environment. So when I wanted to build the habit of flossing, uh, I noticed a few things. I, for many years, for most of my life, I'd brush my uh, teeth twice a day, but I wouldn't floss consistently. And I realized that one of the issues was that the floss was tucked away in a drawer in the bathroom. So I just like wouldn't see it sometimes. The other issue, and it sounds kind of silly, but I wouldn't, I didn't like the feeling of wrapping the floss around my fingers. It was kind of uncomfortable. So what I did was I bought a, a small bowl and I got some pre-made flossers and I put those in the bowl and I set the bowl right on the counter next to my toothbrush. So now, as soon as I brush my teeth, I put the toothbrush down, pick a flosser up, floss my teeth, and then I'm done. And that was pretty much all I needed to do to build that habit. Now I've been doing it twice a day for years and I don't even think about it. Um, so that little 1% change in this case, uh, was moving the floss to the bowl in a more obvious location on the counter and making it a little bit easier by having the pre-made flosser. And in the book, I lay out these four laws of behavior change and, uh, that implements the first law and the third law. The first law is to make it obvious. The third law is to make it easy. And, um, that's just, those are kind of two examples of what that, what a small change might look like. And do you think you need to have like a clear burning desire or a clear motivation to do it. But for example, like everyone talks about, if you want to go to the gym or do some exercise, put your trainers out and then in the morning you, you, you can't step over them. I find myself stepping over them every morning. <laughs> like no matter how clearly in the road they are, they just become something I jump over. But do you think there's that? And you know, we speak about behavior change and the element of, you know, you have to anchor yourself and what is your desire? What is your motivation? But in terms of the flossing, did you have a clear objective as to why you wanted to do it? Or was it, I kind of know I should do this or. Right. So, uh, I guess the clear objective was that I wanted to floss my teeth, but in this case, because that habit is so small, um, I don't think we need to talk about like much more of an objective to that. Uh, it was just that I, I already wanted to do it now. Uh, what you're mentioning here with the exercise habit raises a really crucial point, which is that um, in the book, I lay out this four stage model for behavior. And it, it's pretty similar to some other models uh, that people may have seen, uh, Power of Habit, for example, or BF Skinner's work, um, where this kind of cue routine reward idea for habits. But there's one really crucial caveat and difference. And that is that my model has a second stage that occurs before a behavior happens. And that stage is what I would call a craving or a prediction. Uh, there's some kind of interpretation of the cue. So for example, you see your trainers on the floor whenever you step over them. So you've seen the cue, but the cue does not immediately lead to the routine of going for a run. 
Why not? It's because of what's happening in that second stage in the interpretation. And so the key here is that you need to make your habits attractive. If they are not attractive, if you don't have a desire to perform them, then uh, you can have cues in front of you all day long. They're not going to change behavior. And so this is why sometimes I'll say things like perceived value motivates action. Uh, True value motivates repetition. It gets you to return in the future. Um, So another way to think about that is the perception of whether something is going to be useful for you is actually what drives the behavior. So if someone, you know, like if you, Uh, if you buy a book on Amazon, it's not actually, you aren't, it sounds weird, but you're not actually buying the book. What you're buying is your expectation of the book. You can't actually have bought the book because you don't have it yet. You don't have the physical item. All you can buy is the image that it creates in your mind. And that is what motivates you to take the action. And that's true for going to the gym, uh, for purchasing a product, for pretty much any behavior that we take, there's some type of perception that precedes it. And what determines whether a habit is attractive or not? What determines whether that perception is valuable enough to motivate you to act? And there are a variety of things uh, that influence this. We talked about one of the crucial ones, which is social norms. Um, So imagine, for example, that you have your trainers out and you step over them, but you also know that a friend is waiting at the local park to go for a run with you. Well, in this case, you see the cue and it reminds you that if you don't put them on, you're going to be a bad friend because they're going to be stranded there waiting to go for a run and you just left them. Um, And so there are a variety of ways to increase the attractiveness of a particular cue or to change what it means to you and how you perceive it. But that is a crucial stage for getting any habit to stick because uh, just making things obvious can help if you already want to perform them like me doing a flossing habit but it's not going to magically transform things if you don't change the perception or the prediction of how useful that behavior will be in the first place. Yeah. And so what about you're going to imagine that stopping a bad habit or breaking the bad habit? Correct. So uh, take the habit of watching too much television um, or watching Netflix or something like that. For many people, um, this again is an environment issue. You know, walk into pretty much any living room. Where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the TV. So it's kind of like, what is this room designed to get you to do? Um, Now, there are a variety of steps that you could take here, a variety of little 1% improvements, so to speak. You could uh, do something simple like turn the chair so it doesn't face the TV or uh, put the remote control inside a drawer or underneath the, the coffee table or something like that. You could um, take the television and put it inside a wall unit or a cabinet of some sort so it's behind doors. So all of this, again, is making it less obvious. But the other thing that you could do is increase the friction associated with the task. So you could take like the batteries out of the remote control. And now, um, you know, it takes an extra five to 10 seconds to turn the television on. And maybe that's enough time for you to realize, do I really want to do this or am I just turning it on mindlessly? Or you could unplug the TV from the wall and only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you're not allowed to just mindlessly turn things on and browse. Um, If you really wanted to be extreme about it, you could take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only take it out when you wanted to watch something. Um, I actually had one reader who they decided just to get rid of the TV. So they, they haven't had a television for two years now. And whenever her husband really wants to watch a game, 
the measure is, do I want to watch it enough to drive 15 minutes and go to the bar to watch it? Or do I not? And if I don't want to watch it enough for 15 minutes of work, then I just won't watch it because we don't have a TV. But I, I like that kind of uh, choices like that, that increase the amount of friction and prevent you from doing things mindlessly and make it uh, at least a little bit harder for you to fall into it uh, automatically. I actually do something similar with my phone. I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And I have a home office, so it's not that far away. It's only up the stairs. And if I wanted to get it, it would probably only be 45 seconds away to, to walk up and grab it. But I pretty much never get it, which is so interesting to me because if I had it on me, if I had it next to me, I would probably check it every like five minutes. Um, so you would think, well, if I'm checking it every five minutes, I wanted to look at the phone. But really, I only wanted to look at it if it didn't require much work. If it required 45 seconds of work, it wasn't worth it. And there are, this is not a good solution for like true addictions, but for many bad habits, for many unproductive habits, we simply do them because they're the most convenient or the most obvious thing. And if you add a little bit of friction or make it a little less obvious, uh, it's often true that the behavior will fade away on its own. Yeah, I think that is, that is true, isn't it? And when it's um, a lack of mindfulness, um, but compared to those like true addictions, alcohol, smoking, Oftentimes, the, the, I guess the research shows you need to maybe swap out the behavior rather than just remove it. And something needs to fill that, that void of what, what would initially be cued and then triggered. Um, yeah, you really have three options if you want to break a bad habit. Uh, the first option is what we just mentioned. So like leaving the phone in the other room. So you essentially reduce exposure to the cue. Um, you know, if you want to spend less money on electronics, then don't follow a bunch of tech review blogs so that you're always seeing the latest gadget, you know, or if you want to lose weight, don't follow food bloggers on Instagram. Um, you know, you're like constantly being triggered and have to, to resist that stuff. So, uh, if you reduce exposure in many cases, that can be enough to eliminate, uh, like a time waster habit or, uh, just a, a general bad habit. The second option is to increase the difficulty of performing the task so that it's so hard that you don't, you aren't able to do it when you have the temptation to do it. Um, so, you know, for example, like the, uh, the television habit that I just mentioned, if the TV is in the closet and you want to watch something and you kind of have the desire to watch it, but you're like, oh, I'm not going to take it out and plug it in and put it on the wall and you know, go through all this work. So you thought about it, you were cued in some way, and then you had a craving to perform it. So you did have some level of desire, but the action was difficult enough that you were like, well, I guess I'll just let it fade. Um, so that's, that's the second option is to sit with that craving and let it pass. Um, I don't know that that's a great long-term strategy, but if the friction is high enough, um, you, you will avoid the, the task. And then the third option is the one that you mentioned, which is you can have the same cue and experience the craving, but then replace it with a different action. Um, and uh, that can often be a really effective solution as well. So you can imagine that, you know, like let's say you come home from work and you feel stressed and exhausted. Well, there are a variety of ways to deal with that feeling, with that craving. You could play video games for an hour. You could smoke a cigarette to reduce stress. You could um, go for a run for 15 minutes or meditate for 10 minutes. And any of those actions could solve the problem you're facing of feeling stressed and anxious. And so if you could substitute the 
hour of video games for a 20 minute run, then that might be a good way to, to swap it and solve the, the same issue that you're facing. Because that's quite hard in itself is trying to work out what part of it is almost the hardest to break. Is there a specific part of, I guess, the, the habit cycle, whether it's kind of the queuing, um, the, the trigger aspect there, the repetition element, or that you find consistently the hardest to change or the hardest to affect? Well, uh, it's a good question. Probably the second or the fourth stage in my model would be the hardest. Um, you know, like if you, if, you're, if you have a habit of smoking and you see a pack of cigarettes on the table or a friend smoking outside, the craving is probably going to arise naturally. I mean, it's really hard to stop that. Um, now it's possible, and I have talked to a variety of smokers who have done this, where they essentially reprogram the way that they interpret the cue. And if you, uh, if you read about some, uh, some books that are effective at breaking bad habits, they'll recommend strategies like this. Like they take all of the things that smokers say to themselves, like, oh, I smoke to reduce stress. And then they invert them. They say, well, you don't smoke to reduce stress. Like smoking does not relieve your nerves. It destroys your nerves. It terrorizes your biological systems and um, breaks down your body. Uh, or they'll say things like, well, I smoke to be social with friends. And they'll say, well, that's not true because you've been social in many cases when you didn't have a cigarette at all. And so they basically take like line by line and try to reinterpret all of those cues, all those excuses or logic and reasons for why they view things in a certain way. And if you can do that effectively enough, then it is possible to change the uh, how attractive or unattractive you consider a particular cue to be. But that's challenging. Uh, and then the second uh, part that's difficult is the reward. And this is in many, for a bad habit at least, it, sometimes it's not even effective to think about this because you go through the queue, you interpret it and have a craving, you take an action, and then the reward occurs, the benefit of the behavior or how it serves you. Well, at that point, the behavior's already been performed. So it's kind of, it, it might, by changing the, uh, the fourth stage and reducing the, um, enjoyment of the habit by making it less satisfying. You could change the odds that you'll perform the behavior next time, but for this time, the behavior's already been performed. So- Yeah, it feels like a long-term strategy really because you're changing the expectations because it's almost the expectations of the reward if we, if we look at Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> um, correct, if you can change the reward and make it less satisfying this time around, then your expectation, your craving next time around should be reduced. Um, so yeah, those are, those are challenging, but can be effective if you can manage to do them. And I talk about more strategies for doing that in the book, but it's, um, those are definitely two of the harder parts. Okay. So with, with your book, if people were to only, only remember one thing from it, obviously after having purchased it and having read it all, if they're only to having like, remember one thing, what would you hope that they remember? Hmm. Yeah, that's so tough. Um, I mean, I lay, I'll give you two answers. So, I mean, first I, I lay out this four stage framework for thinking about habits. So from a high level, I, I think I would like them to remember those four stages and that gives them basically a toolbox for thinking about how to build better habits. If they can remember the four laws of behavior change, then they can walk around and start to, to see different areas where they can improve their life or their business or so on. Um, 
But from a practical standpoint, and this comes back to something I said early on, you know, I like to think about things in a big picture view and in a, how do we actually apply this? Like in the nitty gritty detail view. Um, I would say one thing that I'd really like everybody to come away with is what I call the two minute rule. And so the basic idea is that you take any habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to just the first two minutes. Um, so, you know, people have heard things like this before ideas like you should start small or you should take small steps. But even when you know that you should start small, it's still easy to start too big. And so people might say something like, uh, okay, I want to build a habit of going for a run after work each day. But I know that I should start small, so I'll only run for 15 minutes. But even that is like way bigger than what I'm talking about here. Um, in fact, I think what it really should be is like the first two minutes of the behavior. You put on your shoe, you tie your shoes and you step out the door. And if you do anything else after that, then it's just a bonus. And sometimes it sounds like a, a trick to some people. It sounds like a mental trick. You're like, well, I know the real habit isn't to put my shoes on and get out the door. I know I really want to go for a run. So like, why would I do that? Um, but if you feel that way, I would encourage you to actually force yourself for the first few weeks to just put your shoes on and step out the door to just do the first two minutes of the behavior. And the reason I say that is because a habit must be established before it can be improved. So I had one reader who ended up losing over hundred pounds. And one of the things that he did was he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would go, he'd show up, he'd be there, he'd do like half an exercise, five minutes would get up and then uh, he would leave and go home. And he did this for like six weeks. And eventually he was like, you know, I'm coming here all the time. I kind of feel like staying a little bit longer, um, which is exactly the opposite of how many people feel when they go to try to build a new habit. And this is really crucial because he was mastering the art of showing up. And this is what the two minute rule helps you to do. It helps you master the art of showing up each day. And um, so often we're focused on trying to figure out like the perfect plan for change, the perfect diet plan, uh, the perfect business idea, the best way to you know get strong or to meditate or something like that. And these, these ideas, these perfect ideas, in that case, people are trying to optimize before they standardize. And I think it should be the reverse. You know, we're often trying to, to optimize for the finish line when instead we need to optimize for the starting line. Because if you don't get started each day, then you don't have anything to optimize to begin with. If you don't master the art of showing up, there's nothing else to do. Um, and so that would be my kind of my first main takeaway. The thing that I really hope people can embrace and utilize in their daily life is take whatever habit you're trying to build scale it down to the first two minutes and then master the art of showing up. And once you become the type of person who's doing that habit each day, even if it's really small, even if it's only two minutes, then you have a lot of options. Then you have ways that you can uh, optimize and improve from there. That's absolutely fascinating. I think the two, because I'd, I'd read a little bit about what you've written before about the two minute rule, but it's quite hard to think just doing it, just pushing yourself to do it consistently when in your head you are like, oh, but I know I'm going to have to run eventually, but forcing yourself to just show up. Um, well, there are a lot of like logistical details associated with any habit that people don't really think about in the beginning. You know, I mean, like the example I just gave of my reader who uh, went to the gym for five minutes. It's like, okay, well, what gym are you going to go to? Uh, what route will you take to get there? Are you going to go before work or after work? Um, will you go with a friend or are you going to work out by yourself? Do you need to bring your own water bottle or is there a water fountain at the gym? 
And all that stuff, like uh, things like that sound silly, you know, like, oh, the gym doesn't have a water fountain and I always forget to bring my water bottle. But that's enough to get people to quit in the beginning, especially if things are hard, you know, like if they're trying to go for 45 minutes and they feel exhausted and then they always forget their water, um, like that, that's enough for them to be like, oh, I'm just not going to bother. Um, but if you just focus on the first two minutes, then you can get like all those logistical details figured out. All that stuff that most people aren't thinking about when they just think, oh, I just want to lose a little bit of weight. Um, and once you get all that stuff figured out, then you've got kind of the mental space. You have the option and the opportunity to improve the workout itself or to do all the other stuff. But you, you really have to master the art of showing up before any of the rest of that becomes relevant. So with your book, do you see that being the kind of culmination of all of your work so far and maybe the the end point or do you see continuing to develop and research in the kind of field of habit or yeah good question uh in a way i see it as the beginning rather than the end um so uh, authors especially non-fiction authors often make what i consider to be a kind of a mistake which is they they take years to write this book, which it took me three years, uh, plus an additional three before that, where I was just kind of writing about habits and thinking about the topics in general. And because writing a book is such an effortful process, because it takes so long uh, and so much hard work to put together, once it's completed, I think many nonfiction authors are like, this is it. Like, these are my ideas on the topic. And you naturally start to double down on those ideas more because you have them in print, because you've taken all that time and put put the effort in. But although that's all true for Atomic Habits, although I'm very proud of the book and I spent an incredible amount of time and energy researching it and writing it and making sure the ideas are as clear as possible. In a sense, uh, I want to approach the book like a scientist and scientists update their beliefs when new evidence becomes available. And so this is really, this book is really like the world's most polished first draft on how human behavior works. Um, you know, it's kind of like, this is my this is my thought after the first six years of work. And um, this is how I think it works and why I believe that way, what the science behind it. But as I learn more, uh, I want I want to update and improve the book. Uh, you know, maybe I'll do like a 10 year anniversary edition or something like that, that uh, improves on all the things that I'm sure I'm about to learn from readers and others who, who take a look at the book and just other research I come across in the next decade. So I'm very open to changing the ideas. Um, and my hope is that no matter when you read it right now or uh, the updated edition in uh, a long time from now, that Atomic Habits will continue to be the most comprehensive guide on how habits and human behavior work and specifically what we can do to change them. Um, and so I think in order to achieve that goal, I need to be willing to, to update and improve as time goes on. Well, that's exciting. Um, well, we're really looking forward to reading your book when it comes out and the 10 year edition when on the front cover is James Clear gets Eleanor running. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Um, and good luck with the running habit. Yeah, starting it off anyway. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, you bet. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No, your book comes out. Do you want to just remind us when it comes out? Sure. So Atomic Habits launches on October 16th in the US and October 18th in the UK. Um, you can learn more at atomichabits.com. And uh, the book is there, but also there are a variety of bonuses that are available with the book. Uh, so some additional guides on how to apply the ideas in the book to business, how to apply the ideas to parenting. Um, 
some uh, some extra templates and uh, and worksheets that help you implement some of the ideas in the book. Anyway, all of that is available at AtomicHabits.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Many thanks to James and Eleanor for an interesting conversation. Atomic Habits is available online and we'll link in the description. For more of his writing, you can visit his site, jamesclear.com, where he posts articles related to evidence-based self-improvement. For your dose of behavioral science on Twitter, you can follow at jamesclear and us at Ogilvy Consult UK. And of course, check out our blog, o-behave.tumblr.com, where we post a variety of behavioral science topics. And finally, we want to thank Sound Lounge and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thank you for listening.